Good evening. Good evening and welcome to Calvary Chapel. So good to see all of you this evening and to be together this week in God's Word. We are in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2 and in verse 11. And before we get started, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. What can we say? Your word, it it revives us, sustains us, fills us. Oh, Lord, your word is is powerful. It's alive. It's it's able to, to touch our hearts in a way that nothing else can. And by the power of your spirit, Lord, we pray that this evening your word would change our hearts and that we would be called to a deeper relationship with you one that honors you and glorifies you by our actions and our words, but especially in our hearts, Lord. And so as we open your word with reverence, we ask that you would speak to each of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11. We've been going through this book, and we find ourselves now in this chapter where we see Nehemiah's challenge to the Jews. He's going to challenge the Jews to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And I I want us to look closely at his leadership style and and, and how he goes about challenging them to do the work of God. We've talked about how he was called, and we've talked about how he went about seeking the Lord's will and how the Lord used the king, Artaxerxes, to provide for all of his needs. And he was sent to Jerusalem to do this work. But we read in the first two verses of this section, in verses 11 and 12, The Nehemiah tells us, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men and had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. The first thing I'm struck by as I I look at this is Nehemiah's discreetly and I I highlight that word discreetly, examining the wall. He's about to look at the wall. He's he's going to check it out. He's going to look over what needs to be done. And the first thing I'm struck by is this is a man that waited months, prayed months, journeyed perhaps months or at least weeks to get to Jerusalem. He has everything he needs. God has confirmed it over and over again that he's not only called, He's gotten there safely. He's been sent and supplied. And you would think, as most of us would, arriving in Jerusalem, that he would, being the kind of man he is, get started on day one. A lot of our politicians like to tell us, when I get elected on day one, I'm going to do this and do that. The thing we know about Nehemiah is he was not an impetuous man. He was a man of patience and contemplation. How do I know that? He waited three whole days before venturing out to even look at the wall. What was he doing? He didn't go to Jerusalem on vacation. He went there to do this work, and yet the first three days, he he doesn't even look at the wall. What could he have been doing? I venture a guess he was praying, seeking the Lord, connecting, settling in. It's so important to understand this, that anytime you rush something, you ruin something. Anytime you rush something, you ruin it. 
I mean, you can work well, you can work accurately, you can even work quickly, but if you rush past the point of acting in the way that God has called you to act or, or doing something in a way that, that results in quality, then you're going to, as we always have heard growing up, I heard this, haste makes waste. And so he's not impetuous. Patiently, he contemplates the work. He's also not an attention seeker. He's a man of discretion. Discretion, and that's a wonderful word. It, it's so infrequent that we see anymore a person in a position of power being discreet. But being discreet is important. How do I know he wasn't an, an, an attention seeker? How do I know that? Well, he went out at night. He didn't even want anyone to see him looking at the wall. And he only took a few men, just, just what he needed. And he didn't tell anyone about his plan. He tells us that. He didn't tell anyone. I think many of us, when we receive a call from God, tell everyone. And we want everyone to know that we're called by God, that we've got a work to do, that God has laid his hands on us, and maybe we send out support letters. Maybe we just set up a blog. Maybe we go out there and just let everyone know what we're about to do or what we're doing. And I think sometimes it's better to just discreetly do the work of God. I can remember when I was working in uh, the corporate world, I, I used to tell everyone, you know, keep a low profile. You really want to, like in a foxhole, keep your head down. Because you know what happens when you don't, right? You just get more work, number one. And, and you might get credit, but more often than not, you get the blame. So keeping a low profile, that's something that you want to do. I, I am not one of those people that wants everyone to know what I look like or who I am. I, I go out of my way to make sure there are few, if any, pictures online of me. If you've posted them, shame on you. I don't have a Facebook page or an Instagram account, and I don't have any pictures of me on our website. We don't want to scare anyone away. I, I think that realistically, when you do that, when you bring attention to yourself, when you get out there and you make it about you, you run the risk of being distracted. And I think it's better to be discreet. After all, God rewards us not on the basis of what we talk about, but what we do. And we don't do it to bring attention to ourselves. I love this man, Nehemiah. He goes out at night, doesn't want everyone to know. He's not telling everybody what's going on. He doesn't even tell anyone that he's going to rebuild the walls of the city. He guarded what God had put in his heart to do for others. And I think we should do that. We should get into the practice of guarding the things that God speaks to us, not broadcasting them or posting them online, or, or, or writing a newsletter to let everyone know what God is doing, but realistically being discreet and just doing the work of God. He only took his own horse, his own mount, because he didn't want to bring attention to himself. Now, what did he do? Why, why did he go out there? I mean, why go out there at all? Well, in verses 13 through 15, we read that by night, Nehemiah writes, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall, and finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. 
He tells us exactly what he did. He tried to get around the city to survey the damage to the walls and try to figure out exactly what needed to be done. He knew that the walls were broken down and the gates were burned with fire. He knew that when he was serving in the court at the citadel of Susa in Persia. But he needed to see for himself. He wanted to inspect the wall. And what did he find? He found that it was in desperate need of repair. He found the wall broken down. Its gates destroyed by fire. He knew that a rebuilt wall would provide protection for, from the enemy and security for God's people. And he was going to build that wall. And he knew that installing a gate would allow them to control who entered the city. You, you know, if you put up a wall but you don't have a gate, you can't get in, right? But you also can't control who comes in and who goes out. So the gates were necessary. He needed to rebuild the wall, install the gates. And then he also found that the road around the wall was filled with debris. I don't know about you, but especially over the last couple of years, I've noticed our roads have been really in disrepair. And sometimes you're driving down the road, you hit something and you realize this debris. I mean, I've had so many run-ins with road debris over the years. Things kicking up and hitting my car and you certainly realize it when you look at a road and you see the potholes and you see all the debris, you realize at, at a certain point, it becomes impassable. When we were in Cuba, I guess it might have been the, the second time uh, recently. I, I've been there three times, but the, well, the second time my wife and I went, I think was 2017. I think it might have been that time. We ended up staying on this, uh, or in this church, actually, and while we were, or maybe it might have been 2015, I can't remember anymore. I'm getting old. But I do know this, that we stayed in this church, and while we were in the church, there was a road that had just been completely neglected. I mean, basically, there was like a pile of dirt in the middle, and grass was growing out of it. You couldn't even pass through that street. So if we were getting dropped off there, they had to kind of park on the side, and we had to find our way in. But you couldn't just drive through. It was in complete and total disrepair. The road was not passable. Well, the road that Nehemiah found was filled with debris. And this is the road that went around the wall. You needed that road cleared in order to repair the walls, but the road was not accessible. And he knew that accessible roads would allow them to move freely around the city. So he's looking, he's thinking, okay, I got to get the walls built. I got to get the gates. I got to clear the roads. All of this needs to be done. He's taking inventory of all that needs to be accomplished for him to fulfill his call. And then the wall and the gate and the road are not just things that he needed to do. I believe they're also pictures, metaphors, if you will, of the things that we need to change or repair in our own lives. I'll give you an example, the wall. We need a wall. All of us need walls in our lives. We call them boundaries. There are many books now written about this. Boundaries. Drawing boundaries in our lives is is very difficult, if not impossible, unless you learn the skills of, of, of how to say no and how to communicate what you're willing to be involved in and what you're not willing to be involved in. And when we build a wall in our lives, we build it for protection. We, we build it from protection from the enemy and for security for our lives. And sometimes it's a wall that protects us from sin or the enemy or those who would harm us. 
And then sometimes it's a wall that just puts up a boundary and says, you know, I'm willing to do this much, but no more. And we have these people in our lives that are called boundary busters. They like to scale the wall or knock it down. They, they, they want you to do for them the plan they have for your life. And so you need a wall. Again, protection, security. Walls are good things. Now, we also need gates. And gates are important because walls without gates, well, they don't allow anyone to pass. And if you have an open spot, then you no longer have a wall because people just go around it and go through the open spot in the wall. It's not really a wall anymore, is it? Sounds like I'm talking about the southern border of the United States, doesn't it? I'm not, but it sounds like it. We need a gate. We need gates in our lives as well because that allows us to control those who enter our lives to influence us. A gate is like a door or a window. You can lock it. You can close it. You can open it. And, and if you just put up a wall around uh, your life, you isolate yourself from everyone, that's not a boundary. That's, that, that's an impenetrable boundary that will prevent you from being used by God or connecting with others. And so you need a gate that you can unlock, open, and allow people to pass through. Do we have that in our lives? I remember a number of years ago, I took a boundaries class. I actually took it twice because the first time didn't take. I always had a hard time in my life drawing boundaries. So I took these classes. We held them here, actually, at the church. And uh, the woman who was teaching the class did a great job, but she had a, a picture of a life without boundaries. And it was basically just sort of like a pavilion. It had no walls, just had sort of a roof. And you could just enter from any angle. There was no way to stop you. And then, you know, she had another model where it was all closed up and there, there was no doors, there were, there were no windows. But then you saw the perfect model, which is a secure house in this case. Yes, there are walls to the house, but there were doors and windows that you could open. And that needs to be our lives, and we need to gain the skills to be able to know, when do we open the door? If, if you hear the doorbell ring and you go to the door and you look out the window and it's Satan, do you open up the door? I hope not. Many people do, though, don't they? In fact, they just go to Satan.com, whatever that website might be. And, and what happens is people open up the doors of their lives to satanic influence, to sinful things, to wickedness, to things that displease God. But if we have a door, if we have a gate, we can shut that gate. We can shut that door. And so I think, you know, when we look at our own lives, we look at the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah is called to rebuild the city, but we have to rebuild our lives. Our walls have been broken down. Our gates have been burned with fire. And as far as the roads in our lives, listen, we all need roads in our lives, paths. And that provides the freedom to follow God's call. So if there are areas in your life you'd like to walk down, but there's too much stuff, there's too much debris in your life, there's things that need to be cleaned up that would prevent you from traveling in the direction God has called you to go, you need to remove those things from the road so you can pass. And I think about how many people don't serve God simply because there are too many things in their lives, too many distractions, too many things they've gotten involved in that keep them from doing the things that God has called them to do obstacles, we might call them. And unless you eliminate the obstacles in your life, 
You can put up walls and gates, but at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to pass. You're not going to be able to go and do the things that God has called you to do. I remember when I first became a Christian, I I felt God's call to be involved in ministry. And so I, I started serving and I had to put up some walls. There were some things that I needed to keep out of my life. But I needed to have gates to let certain people in. But one of the biggest problems I had was the roads in my life were clogged with all kinds of stuff. And I I remember one particular weekend they were having a church retreat. And I really wanted to go, but I was working because I was a professional musician. That's what I did. I worked on the weekends. And so every weekend that the church had something going on, guess what? I was out playing a wedding or a club or something. And after a while I realized this would not do. These were obstacles in my life that were preventing me from traveling the path that God had called me to go on. So at that point, I gave my notice and I left the band. And, you know, it it was a difficult decision. I guess the worst part of it was that I gave up like half my income. But at the same time, God opened up paths and roads and, and, and all of these opportunities came flooding into my life just because I removed the boulders and the debris that were standing in the way of me walking towards God's call for my life. So I would say, as I look at the city of Jerusalem, as I look at walls, gates, and roads, I'm just making application here, personal application. It doesn't have anything to do with Nehemiah, but he had work to do. We have work to do. There's work that needs to be done in our lives. And I would say that these things that he was going to accomplish relate very closely to the things that I believe God wants to accomplish in our lives. But there are people with debris in their lives, and that debris hasn't been cleaned up. As a consequence, they still really can't go where God is calling them to go. And there are people that don't put up the walls, and so people are in their lives. Things are in their lives that should go, and and then there are others that shut themselves off from everyone, and that's not good either. So walls, gates, roads— All of those things needed to be within the project or the scope of the project that Nehemiah was about to accomplish. Now let's continue. Nehemiah knew he couldn't do the work alone. Say, I can't do the work alone. I can't do the work alone. First of all, you can't do it without God. God does the work through you. But even a work that God calls you to, you're going to find out very quickly, you can't do alone. Have you ever tried to carry a long table by yourself? I mean, there are, I, I can lift a fair amount of weight, but if, it, if that weight is really condensed like an air conditioner, you're going to hurt yourself. And it's so much easier when you say, hey, would you grab the other side of this? And it's not even that much weight. It's just, it, it's, it's awkward. You twist the wrong way, and now you can't move. I think one of the things we need to do as Christians is recognize God has not called us to be one men, one woman shows. I don't know of any time, really, in my life or any time I've even seen in the scripture where God hasn't wanted me to work with others. In fact, there are so many ministries where it all depends on one person, right? How does that work out? It almost never works out well. So Nehemiah realized this is a big work. God has called me to this work, but he hasn't, you know, turned me into Hercules, and now I'm going to suddenly be able to lift all these boulders myself and do all the work myself. We're going to see that his gift, his gifting was administration, and one of the things he was awesome at was getting people involved. But he also served. There's some people that are very good at getting everyone else to do the work. 
But it's a combination of doing the work that God has called you to do and getting others to do the work that they're called to do. One of my favorite things to do in ministry is to connect people. This person has a vision, this person has a vision, and you put them together and you realize they're a good team. They can work together. They want the same things. That This is a good fit. When that happens, I'm, I'm always encouraged. And sometimes that's my role, just to say, hey, you, hey, you, you guys, you need to talk. Because you're on the same page, even though you've never met. I did that recently with two individuals who were involved with Calvary Kids on Wednesday nights, and it's been working out great. And it gives me such joy to see people fulfilled in their gifts simply because I looked and I recognized these two individuals should be working together. So sometimes, like a Nehemiah, you, you see things and you, you, you encourage people and they, and they do the work, and that's a good thing. But a lot of times, you need to roll up your sleeves as well and do the work alongside of them. And one of the things that's rather discouraging is when someone is called to do a work and, and actually they get everyone else involved and then they just sort of sit there and, and they're the foreman. You know, they just sort of watch as everyone does the work. I don't think that's very encouraging. Nehemiah challenged the Jews to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Oh, he was going to spearhead the project. He was going to lead it. He was going to be involved. But he challenged the Jews. Look at what happened in uh, verses 16 through 18. We read, The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. And now we get some insight as to why he hadn't said anything. Because he didn't want the message to get ahead of him. You see, it's so important that we realize, if you're going to inspire and encourage people to do a work, uh, you need to handle that properly. There's a a, a detente. There's a a way to communicate that. There's, There's a necessary process that you have to take. You can't just blurt it out and say, you guys, wait till you find out what you're going to do. (laughs) My pastor in the city he used to come to us, and we did a lot of projects around the church, you know, installing things and putting in kitchens. And his opening line for anything we, we were going to end up having to do is, hey, good news. <laughs> we used to laugh. Good news. And we look at each other. What's the good news? We can put in that door. Oh, good news. Guess I know what I'm doing this weekend. So that was our joke. We used to say, hey, good news, you know. Good news. You can do the work. That's not the right way to handle this. What Nehemiah did, he took the time. He, he calculated how he was going to present this vision. He didn't just blurt it out. In verse 17, it says, Then I said to them, so you see, there was a, a time where he kept it to himself, and now we begin to understand, what was Nehemiah doing for three days? He wasn't just praying. He was planning. He was crafting his presentation. He was, he was learning about the work so that he could present the work so that the work could get done. And so it says, then I said to him, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding So they began this good work. I want to say like, huzzah. Reminds me of that Braveheart moment. Sons of Scotland, you know. Where you come out and you have to inspire an entire army to to stand. 
for what's right and perhaps give their lives. You don't do that lightly. You don't just say, hey, guys, uh, could get ugly. Some of you guys aren't going to make it. That's not an inspiring speech. I often think of what the coach or the head coach has to say to the team in the locker room at halftime to inspire them to come back out and not give up. It's a skill, it's a gifting, a leadership gift to be able to present a vision in a way that makes people realize this work needs to get done. And that is a gifting that Nehemiah had in spades. So what we see here, he waited for the right moment. Are we good at waiting? Probably not. Most of the time, oh, I just can't wait, I got to tell you. Nehemiah waited for the right moment to challenge the people to rebuild the wall. He understood the importance of timing, and he was sensitive to others. Timing is everything. You know, you could tell a joke, and if your timing's off, it falls flat. If your timing is off on your car, if your car is not running with the proper timing, it overheats. The engine could seize. Timing is a delicate thing. It has to be just right for everything to work. He knew that it was important to examine the devastation before challenging the people to rebuild. There's lots of people that have no idea what they're up against, and right away they start enlisting people to do a work, but they haven't even thought about what was involved or what was going to be involved in the work. Unfortunately, many, many gifted men and women who are gifted in ministry are not so gifted in this area. So a lot of times it's, you know, they get everything started, but the follow-through doesn't happen, or they haven't really calculated the cost. Jesus talked about this. You have to count the cost of a project. What kind of a home improvement uh, tradesman or handyman or carpenter or plumber would you be if you couldn't look and estimate the job and figure out about how long this is going to take, how much the materials are going to cost, if you got that wrong, you're not going to make any money or you're going to really upset the customer. You have to be able to do that. You have to be able to look at a situation and say, hmm. See, I was a project manager, so I, I understand that that is an important skill set. And I thank God that he gave me the opportunity to do that at an insurance company to learn how to manage a project because so much of ministry is projects. But projects involve people. And because projects involve people, you have to handle it properly. And so, he knew that he needed to examine the devastation before challenging the people to rebuild. Now, he was sensitive to the needs of the people, and he encouraged them to rebuild the wall. He's not saying, I'm going to do this great work and I want you to watch. He said, we're going to do this together. And did you notice how he included himself We make a lot of pronouns today. Not properly, but we we talk a lot about pronouns. By the way, you don't have any pronouns. They belong to the English language. You can use them, but they're not yours. And if you misuse them, I will correct you. You need to know that Nehemiah used pronouns that were applicable and important to this project. Look what he said. Look Look at verse 17, first part. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. The first thing he does, he uses that pronoun to communicate something very important. He included himself with the people as he shared with them his assessment of the devastation. We are in trouble. Not you, but you guys are in trouble. 
Good thing I'm here to, fit, to bail you out. No, we are in trouble. And then he includes himself with the people as he calls them to rebuild the wall. Look at the latter part of verse 17. Let us, another pronoun, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. He includes himself not only in the problem, but in the solution. And he included himself with the people as he envisioned them no longer living in disgrace when he says in the latter part of verse 17, and we will no longer be in disgrace. The pronouns you use and the way you present division are very important. And Nehemiah understood this, but he also took three days to get it right. I love this man's leadership style. If you ask me, of, uh, in the Bible, of any of the people, apart from Jesus, of course, who would you say you'd want to aspire to be like? It would be Nehemiah, hands down. This guy, his, his leadership gifts, the way he approached things. He was a project person. He was a people person. He was tough. He had no problem telling the truth. When you look at his life and you see the way he operated, you can learn so much about good leadership from Nehemiah. Well, Nehemiah shared with him his plan, his plan to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. He told them how, he had, how God had given him a heart for his people and a call to meet their needs. He told them. But he didn't let it sort of trickle out along the way. He waited, he waited till the right moment, and then he, he shared that vision. And he told them how God confirmed his call through the king's approval and the provision of his request. Say, look, this is what God put in my heart, and this is what God did, and we have everything we need to do it. Let's do it. And the people, they responded by agreeing to rebuild the wall and beginning the work. Now, one of the ways you'll know that you're called to be a leader is you'll actually be a leader. I know that sounds ridiculous, right? But if you're going in a direction and no one can follow you or no one is following you or no one has any confidence in your leadership, you're not a leader. I think maybe the White House needs to understand this. You are not a leader if people aren't following you. Nehemiah knew how to lead because people followed him. But it wasn't done haphazardly. He took the time to get it right. So as I look at his life and how God worked through him, I realize their response, they replied, let us, notice us again, Start rebuilding so they began this good work. There was no pulling teeth or convincing anyone because it was a work of God and God's people were called to do it and God's man presented the vision properly. And that's how things get done, as we'll see. This is really a book about getting things done. Now, so much of the work is preparation. But a lot of dealing with a work of God, as we've already seen in our last study, has to do with how you handle opposition. Because if you think, when you're starting, let's say, a project at home, that everything is going to go exactly as planned, ha, I promise you, it will not. I've had projects, and Anthony will understand this, where you're working, everything's going great, you're on the top of the ladder, you drop this screw, it falls down between the floorboards, and you spend two hours trying to get it out. Half an hour job, now it's two and a half hours, just because of something ridiculous like that. It happens. 
things go wrong, right? But you also have those in the spiritual realm who are going to try to oppose you. If you say, I'm going on a trip to India, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think the, India, uh, the, 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 the devil, the enemy is going to say, oh, he's going to India, I, I have a nice time. No, not at all. Not at all. So anytime you stand up to do a work of God, you have to accept the reality that Satan is going to resist you. So rather than saying, I can't believe this. Why is this happening? You need to say, okay, when's the opposition coming? Because it always comes. And this is what happens here. Look at verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Now, there's your opposition. We met these guys in the previous study. They showed up opposing Nehemiah the minute he showed up. That's what's going to happen in your life. Let me just save you a lot of time and tell you that's what's going to happen. The minute you show up to do a work of God, the enemy shows up too. And he'll oppose you. And we're going to see in all the opposition that Nehemiah experienced... All the tactics of the enemy. And this evening, we see that Nehemiah was verbally attacked by the enemies of the Israelites. Oftentimes, the verbal attacks start first. The discouragements. In this case, Sambal and Tobiah, who we met in chapter 1, actually, in verse 10. Actually, uh, chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, Sambal and Tobiah were enemies of God. We know this already. They were enemies of God and of his people Israel. They had a vested interest in keeping the Jews, who had returned to Judea, in trouble and living in disgrace. And by the way, that's what Satan wants for you too, by the way. I think you know that. He wants you to be in trouble and living in disgrace. Now, they, that is these enemies, wanted the wall of Jerusalem to remain broken down and burned with fire. And I promise you, our enemy wants your life broken down and burned with fire. He wants those roads filled with debris. He wants those walls broken down, those gates burned with fire. He, he doesn't want anything in your life to be the way it needs to be in order for God to work mightily through you. Well, Sambal and Tobiah, that was their M.O., that was their desire. But Sambalatabiah and another guy were introduced to named Geshem, the Arab, mocked and ridiculed the people of Israel and accused them of rebellion. By the way, rebellion was a serious accusation. You know, uh, we see that happening in our world today. There's always these, these accusations of rebellion or insurrection. It's like the worst thing you could be accused of at the time of Nehemiah if you were rebelling against Persia. So what do you, what do you think they do? They, they basically say things that aren't true in order to intimidate them into doing nothing. Gosh, it really sounds like we're talking about a world I live in. These men tried to instill fear and self-doubt in those that had agreed to do the work. That was their hope with ridicule and mocking. And they questioned their loyalty to the king, who had approved and provided for their work. You you see, the enemy, so much of what he does to oppose us, it's not even real, it's virtual. He just says things 
gets inside of our heads and tells us things that aren't true. And how many people say, well, I don't want to do that. People won't like me. And that's it. Then the work is thwarted and nothing happens. And you live your life a spiritual failure because you listen to the voice of Sambala, Tobiah, and Geshem, who are the enemies of Israel. As soon as Nehemiah began to fulfill God's call upon his life to meet the needs of God's people, their enemies attacked. So don't be surprised when it happens to you. Our enemy will attack anyone who will agree to do God's work. A person that does God's will and begins God's work will withstand the attacks of God's enemies. It's just that simple. Expect it. Wait for it. Wait for it. If you're in a war and you get fired at, are you surprised? No, that's how it works. I shared that recently. If you're in a war and you're holding a gun and you're on the front line and someone shoots at you, you don't stop and say, I can't believe they shot at me. It's going to happen. You expect it. And yet, as Christians, we get all wigged out when, oh, you believe what they did to me? I lost my job. They didn't like me. My family's not inviting me for Thanksgiving. I'm being persecuted. Yeah, well, you know. I guess you could call that persecution. I wouldn't. But a lot of things happen in our lives when we stand up for God. I mean, let's be realistic. In our world today, when you stand up for what's right, do you get attacked? Absolutely. Politically, in the last couple of weeks, I've been called a Nazi by some of these people. A threat to democracy. You have too if you, if you vote conservatively. It's been suggested the way that our values are, are in, in our nation are a threat to our way of life. One guy even said, I guess it was Clyburn, said, it could be the end of the world. No hyperbole, no. They sound like these guys ridiculing and mocking, using hyperbole, saying things that aren't true. Why is that? Wait, 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 let's stop for a minute. Could it be Satan? Could it be our enemy? See, I've learned to recognize the voice of the enemy. He sounds like this, like Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And so when I see people in the world do the same things that these men did to Nehemiah and the Jews, I know what I'm dealing with, and I pray. I pray for God to deal with it. And you're going to see that's exactly what Nehemiah did. He answered them by saying, look at this, I answered them in verse 20 by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you will have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. The Arabs today need to see this. Those that oppose the Jews and feel that Jerusalem doesn't belong to them need to read that. Because the historic claim and the right to Jerusalem is with God's people. Not because they deserve it, but because God says so. Now, Nehemiah confidently answered the enemies of the Israelites. And he didn't do it in the flesh. He did it in the spirit. Notice he answered them, the God of heaven will give us success. He didn't answer them and say, come over here and say that to my face. You know? He said, what? 
You talking to me? You know, it was none of that. It was, it was, it was God. The God of heaven will give us success. See, he invoked God. And that's what I think we need to do when the enemy attacks us in our call. When we're called to do something for God, and, and someone says, what are you, crazy? What are you, you're going to India? You're going to El Salvador? You're doing what? The God of heaven will give us success. That just sort of deflates the enemy's attacks. It deflates it. There's, there's nothing to it then because you're looking to God, and God is greater than all. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? Nehemiah was confident, and he answered the enemies of the Israelites. He looked to the God of heaven to give them success in their plan to rebuild the wall. And he boldly proclaimed their identity as God's servants and reaffirmed their commitment to rebuild the wall. We're God's servants. This work is going to get done whether you like it or not. And he defiantly rejected these men and their share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to the city. This does not concern you. And he openly exposed these men as the enemies of the people. Well, I think we've been given some insight as to how to persevere in the face of enemies. And also, how to begin a work or or start a work of God or a work that God has placed in your heart. There's so much to it. That's why you just don't jump into it. Because the opposition is going to come. And if you don't have a good answer, if you don't have the right heart, it's going to blow up. Nehemiah challenged the Jews, and the Jews responded to the challenge. That is the confirmation of the work of God. When a man or a woman of God that's called by God does a work of God, and the people that do that work do that with that person, you know that God has confirmed the work. So what is God calling you to do? Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we know that you have a plan and a purpose for each and every one of us. Lord, may you touch our hearts and lead us and show us, direct us, and then give us the insight and the understanding. Help us to slow down long enough to to hear your voice and to follow your leading. And give us success, Lord. Success in doing the work that you've called us to do. Each of us in our ministries, in our families, in this church, in our outreach ministries, missions, trips. Give us success for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.